Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. Today we're going to be speaking with Matthew Edelstein about his paper, Effects of Demand Complexity on Echolalia in Students with Autism. Matthew is a clinical director in the Behavior Psychology Department at Kennedy Krieger Institute and an instructor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He holds licenses in psychology and behavior analysis, as well as being a board-certified behavior analyst at the doctoral level. Matthew's clinical work and research focuses on the assessment and treatment of challenging behavior in diverse pediatric populations and function-based behavioral parent management training. I had a really interesting, fun conversation with Matthew about his research, and I'm excited to share it with you all. So without further ado, here's my interview with Matthew Edelstein. Hey, Matt. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice the Podcast. Thanks, Cody. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you on the show today to talk about your paper, The Effects of Demand Complexity on Echolalia in Students with Autism. But before we jump into that paper, we always love learning a little bit about our guest. So do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your interest in this type of research? Sure. So um, I'm currently a psychologist and behavior analyst at Kennedy Krieger Institute. Um, I'm actually in the outpatient behavior psychology department. So um, when people think of Kennedy, they typically think of our neurobehavioral programs, but uh, we actually have more programs than, than just the NBU. And so my program specifically works with uh, children and families with, with behavior problems, but who have more uh, varied diagnoses, who have um, maybe less severe problem behavior, although if you talk to their families, they'll tell you that those behaviors are just as impactful. So um, more of an outpatient setting, which which is a, a neat kind of variety of different types of problems we get to work with. Um, I graduated from Rutgers University. Uh, that's where I did my doctoral work under uh, Dr. Kim Sloman, and uh, I've been at Kennedy ever since. Nice. I love your your point about the the severity really being in the eyes of the caregiver, right? Like we, as a field, I think we try to distinguish what uh, different levels of of severity of problem behavior. But to parents we work with, it's like it doesn't really matter. They feel like their kid's behavior is the most severe. That's right. It's all it's all relative for sure. So. Thanks for providing the background information. Why were you drawn to to doing research on echolalia? What is what is 
how is this related to everything you're doing? Yeah, well, I guess the this particular study relates to some of the undergraduate work that I did. Um, I worked in a communication and play lab in in my undergraduate and previous graduate work. Um, so that research that was being done there was much more focused on uh, developmental psychology than it was behavior analysis. Um, when I was doing my undergraduate thesis, I actually was looking into echolalia as it relates to mean length of utterance. Um, and the particular type of, of work that I was doing was just correlational. You know, does this type of uh, linguistic phenomenon connect at all to, to parents' antecedent utterances? Um, and as an undergraduate, I you know, doing that type of just very simple observation, I didn't really find much of a, the results weren't significant. They weren't really meaningful. Um, and that obviously frustrated me. So um, as I became more versed in behavior analysis and understanding functional analysis and, and antecedent manipulation, um, I was able to better craft my research question. And it lent itself really nicely to, to this study, which ultimately became my dissertation. That's awesome. I, d I didn't realize this was your dissertation, which I suppose is especially cool. So it's looking at, you know, ultimately uh, different effects or, or, or variables that affect the likelihood of echolalia in this particular study. You're looking at demand complexity. Before we dive into sort of the details of how you set that up, could you provide the listeners who may not be as familiar with the topic, just a general definition of echolalia? Sure. Echolalia is one of those uh, vocal behaviors that can be further broken down, um, and the paper tries to do that. So I think for many of us who work with individuals uh, with autism, we, we see kids engaging in what anecdotally we might call scripting, right? So they're engaging in, sometimes we'll call it movie talk, um, and, that, and that seems to be both immediate um, where they're repeating things that they might have just heard and then delayed, where they're uh, repeating things that they might have heard or seen, you know, in their, in their learning history. Um, and um, oftentimes, instructors, caregivers don't quite know what to do with this behavior. Um, it's often done in the context of leisure. Um, and so in that sense, it's, 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 you know, maybe just part of the individual's vocal repertoire. But, but what I was most interested in is where this behavior can become disruptive. So you can imagine caregiver's frustration when they're trying to ask their, their learner something about you know, their day or, or trying to give them something to do. And instead of a meaning, a, a quote unquote, meaningful uh, response, they're, they're being parroted. Um, so, so immediate echolalia can really think, can really be thought of as this parroting of previous responses and delayed echolalia can really be thought of as maybe more of that movie scripting or, or song scripting that we often hear our kids engage in. What was challenging is, is creating operational definitions for immediate and delayed echolalia. Um, and we really, uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but we really struggled with how to conceptualize these two things, knowing that one would be much more readily observable than the, and, and, and codable than the other. And before we dive into sort of the difference in how you coded them, 
I think it's important to sort of outline how echolalia can be problematic for the clients we serve. And so could you, could you talk about the social significance of a behavior like echolalia? Certainly. I think it, it, as you know, we kind of go up and down the spectrum of autism. So too, do we go up and down the way that this behavior can impact our learners? So I think that certainly for individuals who are engaging in echolalia in an academic setting, it can be disruptive to instruction. Um, it can interfere with not just the, the learner's own instructional environment, but also other learners' environments. And so that can have a, a negative impact on the classroom. Um, for, for our learners who tend to have more of that, that sort of high-functioning autism that we, we tend to think about, it can be socially stigmatizing. So for, for individuals who are otherwise able to engage in, you know, um, reciprocal conversation, having some of this idiosyncratic type of language really makes them seem different from their peers. Um, and, and so th I think there, there's multiple levels of social significance for this behavior. And that's why it felt really important. I, I think just to add on to that, you know, I, parents don't often know what to do with this behavior and find it frustrating. Um, and for all intents and purposes for kids who are, you know, able to, to have good conversation, but, but still engage in this strange type of, of conversation or this strange type of interaction, sometimes parents become overly focused on it. Um, and so, it, you know, it, that added some, some extra um, impetus to, to address this behavior. That makes sense. I mean, thinking about my own clients, when with the clients who engage in more echolalia, it can really disrupt learning opportunities. If they're uh, if they're not responding to the to the the task or whatever it may be um, appropriate, and instead are just simply repeating the the sort of cue or whatever related to any given learning trial or opportunity it can really negatively affect their outcomes if they get stuck on the echolalia rather than responding to, to what is being presented to them. So yeah, it makes sense. Very much a, an important behavior and, and a behavior that's seen relatively frequently within the autism community. For sure. How do behavior analysts typically assess or conceptualize this behavior in terms of function? You kind of outlined some of this within your introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, I, well, I think that it's a little bit messy in the literature. So to some extent, it, it is lumped in with vocal stereotypy more broadly. Um, and, and that makes sense. Um, but, but I, I think in this paper, we were trying to categorize it almost separate from vocal stereotypy as it, as it being its own type of category of behavior. Um, I think anecdotally and practically, I, I have heard people reference echolalia as being just either meaningless or completely unrelated to the social environment, that this is just automatically maintained. Um, and and that, that just didn't, certainly, you know, it's highly individualized and, and, you know, what we'll talk about that it's, there's likely an automatic component to this, but, but it didn't, that didn't feel like it was a complete way of looking at, at the behavior. Um, and 
and part of the, I guess the, the frustration was, you know, we are so function oriented in the way that we address the, the problem behavior that we work on, but there wasn't really a lot in the literature about functional uh, analyses of echolalia in and of itself. You know, obviously with vocal stereotypy, verbal stereotypy, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of, of literature on the assessment and treatment of that type of behavior. Um, but um, but it seems it at least seemed topographically different so much so that it, it warranted its own evaluation in my in my opinion. So when you set out to identify strategies to assess echolalia, why did you start with looking at demand complexity? Why was that a variable of interest for you? Yeah, some of this goes back to. Um, to the literature and back to some of my, you know, early reading on this subject, I think it the most interesting, uh, or I guess thought provoking article that I I had read about this was a, around the constraint of utterances, and so this is that Rydell and Miranda uh, article um, in that was published in '94 that really looked at differences between the. Um, the subjective expectation that that adults were putting on children and whether or not there was a a correlation between the vocal output of the child following that constraint um, that original paper was correlational just like that you know the early work that i did but that that idea really stuck with me that that there's the the more demands we put on um on individuals in terms of what we expect them to come back to us with, the harder that that might be. Um, and if I think about my own experience, you know, when when so maybe in this interview I'll engage in some immediate echolalia. You'll please stop me if I do. That would be very embarrassing. Um, it, you know, you ask me a question that um, that I don't know the answer to. You know, I I I might pause. I might um, I might repeat the question back to you to make sure that I'm you know processing. Um, what you're asking me, you know, that's all those, that's all private behavior. And what we know about autism is that, that, you know, they're not, there's not always that theory of mind that, that you're, that you're, you're hearing my internal dialogue here as I'm processing. Um, so something is going on there. Um, and I was interested to understand what it was. Um, and, uh, and that's really where that, that came from. So given that interest, how did you go about setting up this study? Like what, what how did you recruit participants or, or what type of participants were you using? Where did you conduct this study? Uh, what were some of the variables you were looking at? Yeah, so when I was doing my graduate work at Rutgers, I was lucky to be a part of the Douglas Developmental Disability Center as my uh, my primary practicum. That's where I I spent you know most of my time when I wasn't in class, and so I had I had this population of uh, of children across the across the age spectrum there that they that, you know this is an um, an uh, academic placement for students with autism that's that's not in district. So when districts can't uh, can't support students, they send them to a place like like Rutgers. And so we had the students there. Um, and you know, I, part of my role as a graduate student was to 
to help with behavioral programming for a variety of different classrooms. So I, you know, I, I got to see these students on a day-to-day -day basis. And so um, I was fortunate in that I had this pool of students that I could work with. Um, creating the study was uh, a little bit challenging and, um, and, and kind of fun because essentially what we needed to do was create a list of uh, both, you know, questions that are, we call them mastered questions or, or sort of questions that the, the learner had contact with in their day-to-day -day lives, like, you know, um, where do you live? Um, and then other questions that we had to really rack our brains over to try to think about, you know, questions that, that they would have never heard um, being directly asked. And, and that was kind of fun. Uh, because, you know, asking ridiculous questions, uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe other people have fun in other ways, but that, that to me was a, a great way to have fun. So we created these comprehensive lists of these both mastered and novel questions, um, and, uh, and, and that's how we got started. And how did you go about identifying those novel versus mastered questions? Yeah, so we started with the mastered questions and we really asked the staff about whether these were things that were already in, um, in our, uh, our learners programming, whether um, a, a lot of our learners as part of this academic setting had intraverbal goals. Um, and so it wasn't unreasonable to ask the staff whether these were questions that, that were familiar to, to their learners. If staff weren't, um, weren't sure, we asked them to probe the questions just to make sure that they were either a part of their history or became a part of their history um, before we got, we got the study going. Um, the novel questions we couldn't, we, we, we couldn't probe because then they were novel. So we, you know, some of the questions like, you know, where is Kazakhstan? Um, for, a, for an eight-year-old with autism, just, there's just, there's no reasonable reason to think that they would have come in contact with that type of question. So I, you know, that, I guess that's a potential limitation, but, but I, we all felt pretty confident that some of the, the, the complexity of the questions we were asking were just sort of totally out of left field. Nice. And, and how did you set up a session or what did the various sessions look like with the, with the clients once you identified these master to novel demands? Yeah, so we took clients out of their, their learning environment, out of the classroom into a small uh, research room so that we could really have a little bit more control over the learning environment. Um, so this was, you know, you're sort of, I guess, you know, I, I'm sure it's in the paper somewhere, like an eight by 10 kind of room, just quiet uh, with just the, the instructor, the learner, and, um, and, and the uh, the observers and we actually had a, a, a one-way mirror so that we were able to to observe the interaction without um, without being too intrusive. I should say though that because these learners are part of this environment, they're they're really used to this um, you know moving around in different learning environments and and coming to our research room to address new targets, to address you know behavior concerns. So all of this movement was kind of a, already a part of, of, of their, you know, their day-to-day -day experience. So we felt comfortable that that was, you know, a 
reasonable way to to assess their um, their mastery or you know their responding in um, in the study. Um, and so we you know we took we took kids out of instruction. That sessions were extremely brief. Um, I think you know no more than a couple minutes. And then we just sent them back to class, and we did that multiple times. Nice. And what did a like a, a session or like the trial by trial of a session look like? Yeah. So we gave we gave the uh, the instructors a list of the questions that we wanted them to ask, just to make sure that we were able to have control over, you know, the SDS and and what was being presented, and and then we uh, we let them we let them just do their thing. So part of the, some of the other questions that we needed to ask ourselves were, you know, what, what would be the role of eye contact um, in the asking of these questions? So sort of the presumption here is that, that our learners understand that, that it's their job to take a turn, but the complexity of the question might be controlling their behavior such that if their if their introverbal response is not part of their repertoire, that's that would present the that would occasion the echolalia. However, when someone looks at you, um, that might be its own SD. So we really wanted to control for eye contact um, as well um, because that was that was that might've been a con confounding variable. So we had a control condition as well as part of this multi-element design that we, we used. And in the control condition, we made sure that the instructor's eye, eyes were diverted away from the student so that, and, and in the control condition, they were presenting uh, you know, um, an antecedent utterance that was just neutral. So something like describing the wall or the room or something like that. Um, because the idea would be if this were truly automatic that the that the learner might just engage in echolalia following any type of adult utterance regardless of the quote-unquote constraint or the demand that's being placed on them. That's a fascinating variable to look at and so let me make sure I understand this correctly. So like in a typical trial so and we'll dive into what each of these mean in a moment, but let's say like for a mastered short uh, demand and within that condition, the, the therapist or the evaluator, they make eye contact first, mm -hmm. say the demand, give the student the opportunity to respond as compared to the control condition where they're not really looking at the participant. They're looking off and, and making sort of neutral comment about the environment. That's correct. That's yep. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an interesting variable or potentially confounding variable related to like, if I'm looking at you and saying something, uh, will that affect your, your behavior in some way outside of the demand complexity? That's fascinating. Just transitioning a little bit here into how you decided to measure echolalia or, or or what you were exactly using within the definition of echolalia for your dependent variable. Could you talk about that and explain why you went the route that you went? Sure. Um, so I, I'm interested in, in echolalia, both immediate and delayed, but we ran into a problem with delayed echolalia because it's really hard to, to, to measure it in the context that we were looking to, to, to run the experiment. Um, so 
you know, there's such a varied learning history for some of these kids and their, their lexicon, their, um, their total uh, store of, of words for, is so complex in many of these, these learners that, that it's just, it was hard to really set a good definition of delayed echolalia. So that, that would definitely be an interesting extension to the study, but we decided that because it was so hard to operationally define, we would exclude it. And so we were really just looking at immediate echolalia. Um, in other words, uh, repetition of these antecedent um, adult utterances. But we had to further define that because there are a lot of different topographies of echolalia. And, um, and so we really had to work on articulating these operational definitions, which took some effort. So what we landed on was this sort of three-part definition. And we did that because of how complex echolalia can be and how, how individualized the responses could be. So either this sort of match for match, uh, song for song kind of repetition, or just the words, or just the, the song. And in that way, we felt like we were capturing the, the entire umbrella of immediate echolalia. And we also had to create some, um, some landmark for differentiating between immediate and delayed echolalia. So, um, so we, we decided that, um, that in these sort of brief trials, either the echolalia would, would occur following the antecedent utterance or it wouldn't. And once the trial was over, the trial was over. Um, and so it might've been that through that data collection, we could have missed some echolalia that occurred with a sort of a longer pause, but, but we, we had to, again, sort of set the bar somewhere and then just sort of let it play out. And how long of an opportunity did you provide the participant to respond appropriately or respond in the echolalia? Just 10 seconds. So it was the sort of, they were either going to do it or they weren't going to do it. Um, and it was, I, I remember there were times where we wished that we extended the, the, the duration because some of these questions, you know, you'd get kids sort of like looking like, what is he asking? Um, but you know that's the nature of the of the of research. You have to once you set that bar, you have to follow it. And when you were doing these trials or these sessions, you were using, I believe, ten trials. And so, what would that look like across the session? Like, for example, with a with a novel short demand, would that be something where it, it, it's it's ten novel short demands or were you presenting this uh, novel short demands multiple times within a 10 trial session? How did you break that down? Yeah, so um, we, would do, we would do one session per sort of category. So we would do 10 novel interverbal tasks and that was, that was the session. And then we would, so we had this sort of quasi-randomized order that we would use. And for each, we'd have 10 trials per session. Um, and that, that's sort of how we, would, how we would run it. And all of those 
uh, sessions were predetermined. So we knew exactly what we were going to be doing before uh, the instructor sat down with the, with the learner. And, and we were literally just handing them a card of here are the questions you're going to ask. For the sessions, would the 10 trials or the 10 questions within the trials be the same across each uh, condition? So, for example, for the like novel long condition, um, would that for if you have three or four data points looking at that specific condition, would the would the questions within that condition be the same? Each the questions, the questions were the same acro across participants, but not within participants for the novel condition. So we operated under the assumption that once we asked a question, it was no longer novel. So we had to generate these sort of very long lists of novel questions, um, but we use the same questions across participants as long as staff uh, confirmed that they were indeed novel. Again, due to the nature of some of these questions, we felt very comfortable that they would be novel across across children. Gotcha. That's that's very helpful. So theoretically, if if one of the clients had three sessions in like the novel long condition, that's 30 different novel questions that are being presented. That's exactly right. That's exactly Thanks. right. Um, and so, you know, we part of what what we were thinking about was do we want to ask uh, questions with with words that don't make sense or words that don't actually work together in a real sentence or did we want to leave it as as a, a sentence that made that was coherent English but just was novel to the to the learner um, and we opted with with the coherent kind of sentence so if you were to ask an adult this question they would think you were an English speaker they might just not know the question. Um, and we did that because we wanted the, the results of this study to have meaning. Um, although I guess you could argue that, that that would be a whole separate study to, under, to see how students would respond with sort of neologisms or, or made up words. That's interesting. So we've talked around the conditions that you set up but could we go in and talk about them explicitly, what each one was and, and how you sort of defined the, the parameters of each independent variable? Sure. So we had different categories. Um, so broadly, we had mastered interverbal demands and novel interverbal demands. And within each category, we had what we'd call sort of short utterance and long utterance. So short utterance demands were antecedent interverbal demands of four words or fewer. So an example of that for, um, for a, a, a mastered skill, short utterance would be something like, what is your name? Um, then for, a mastered skill long utterance, um, it would be something that would be a, um, an antecedent interverbal demand of five words or greater. So an example of that would be like, who do you call when you're sick? The answer to that would be like a doctor. Then in the novel category, we had similarly novel short and novel long. So 
with the same criteria. So novel short, four words or fewer, novel long, five words or greater. So a novel short utterance example would be, where is Kazakhstan? And um, a novel long utterance would be, where do you buy discount sneakers? Um, and um, and that's, that's how we broke down each of these categories. Why were you interested in this, the difference between potentially mastered a novel task and the difference potentially within long and short utterances? I didn't quite know what mattered in the, in this assessment. And in the, you know, the, the early uh, work that I'd done on this, on this uh, behavior, it seemed to be that, that, the longer, the, and this, this is in terms of mean length of utterance. So it, in, in uh, my undergraduate program, we had this computer program that would break down, they would record uh, um, an interaction, transcribe it, and then, rec- and then break down how many um, utterances were in each interaction. It seemed like longer utterances produced higher constraint, at least the way that Rydell and Miranda would, would, would frame it. Um, and so, but I didn't know, I didn't know what mattered. And I think if I remember initially, we were just going to look at long and short uh, antecedent utterances. But as I thought about it more, it seemed like this is a more complex issue. And so because I didn't know what mattered and I really wanted to capture uh, this phenomenon, I thought it made sense to, to break it down in the way that we did. I, I loved your first piece of that answer which is we really didn't know what mattered right and I I think that's such a important sort of honest answer in research and and when you're exploring new areas to figure out what variables matter well casting a wide net is probably going to be more fruitful the trick is when you're casting a wide net setting up a design that allows you to do so efficiently you chose a multi-element for this particular study, which seemed to be a pretty efficient way of looking at it. So could you talk about the multi-element you used and why you selected it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I was, I was framing this study off of just functional analysis more broadly. Um, and it made sense, at least conceptually to me, that we would mirror the multi-element design of a functional analysis, uh, because we're really looking at discrete types of um, evocative events. Um, and, and part of what we talked about was, you know, do we want to actually do a functional analysis of echolalia or did we want to just do this antecedent manipulation? Um, and we landed on the antecedent manipulation because again, we didn't, we didn't have, we didn't, we did, there, it was hard to presume what the, what we would provide consequences for. So it seemed like this, this might be engaged, you know, that individuals might be engaging in these behaviors to escape the demand. So, so it could be that we could provide escape contingent on echolalia, but there might be other types of, um, other types of functions at play. Attention could be another one, uh, or even, you know, access to tangible. So here we go, as we're, as I'm talking about this, there, you know, the, the consequence-based um, evaluation is interesting, but complex. 
And the goal of this paper was just to introduce this idea that echolalia warrants further functional analysis. And so I think, I hope we were able to do that with just the antecedent manipulation um, and, and perhaps uh, an extension of this paper could be looking at consequences. I think, you know, however you set up your study, whether you included uh, just antecedents or consequences, at the end of the day, your paper shows functional relations between these antecedent variables that, that you set up and, and the behaviors of interest. And so could you talk about what you saw, what, what were the general results, and what were the, the consistencies across the participants? Yeah, so we saw increased rates of echolalia in the novel conditions across participants. Um, and and it, it did vary uh, by participant whether the novel short or the novel long um, condition was actually the, the one that produced the highest rates of echolalia. Interestingly, we had one participant who, um, as the as the, the trials and the sessions went on, um, started engaging in an I don't know response, uh, which I think was, uh, was really neat, kind of messed up the study a little bit, but, but that's okay uh, because we're, you know, we're just here to observe and record. Um, but, but in a way that sort of confirmed what we, what we were thinking all along, which is that echolalia for some of these learners is essentially an I don't know response. Um, maybe not as uh, as um, as clear to to some as to others, but but this particular learner had I don't know in her repertoire, and it was a previous target that that had been taught. So so she independently switched to I don't know. So we saw her rates of echolalia go down once she sort of decided that that was the response she was going to use. But um, but we did see that the quote unquote highest restraint, constraint, I should say, um, utterances, which are those novel antecedent utterances produced the highest rates of echolalia. Um, and then the other, the other important part is that all of these test conditions were elevated relative to control conditions. So when our learners were presented with uh, seemingly neutral antecedent utterances from instructors, they were not engaging in echolalia. Obviously, this helps identify specific nuances that are affecting your clients or the clients you served at the times, echolalia. What do you think, if we were to extrapolate this, what do you think this means for the general sort of uh, client receiving behavior analytic services who engages in echolalia? Yeah, well, I think the, the biggest, most important takeaway is to not make assumptions on function. Um, that, you know, any behavior of interest should be assessed um, and, and function-based interventions should be used in order to have the best likelihood of a good outcome. I think that's the most important takeaway. Um, and really, that's what I was hoping to, that's what I was hoping to find, that this was worth, this is worth assessing. And so I think it is. Um, what wasn't included in the study because um, we, we actually couldn't find the IOA data, 
which was very frustrating, is there was a second study to this study, which was teaching an I don't know response to the learners. Um, and so as we were writing it up, we have the procedures, we have the data, but we, you know, I, I had then gone on internship and, and had moved away from Rutgers and there was a lot of movement uh, in terms of, you know, um, where data were stored. And so we lost IOA data. And because of that, we couldn't, you know, we, we, we couldn't report on it because we didn't have good, uh, uh, you know, enough, enough uh, evidence that, that, that we had good IOA. Um, but but we did teach I don't know responses to all four participants, and they did acquire those those responses as a functional replacement behavior. So I wish we were able to report on that, but um, but we weren't. That's awesome! Uh, awesome that you were able to train the I don't know. Horrible that you lost the IOA. I mean, that's like I think that speaks to most researchers' fears. The idea yes. I could lose data, <laughs> especially uh, when you've got almost everything you need, right? You get robust results, you've got your primary data as evidence, and then you lose something like IOA. That's like, that's gut-wrenching. So. Sure. <laughs> but what, what, what mattered was that we were able to provide a good intervention for our learners and, and they were able to, to use it and those those responses maintained over time. So we, you know, we had to keep this into perspective, right? Like we're here to serve our clients. The clients had a, um, a good, a good intervention that, that ended up being helpful, but yeah, it was, it was this sort of, you know, look up at the sky kind of why <laughs> moment. Um, but, uh, but luckily we were able to put out, I think a, a pretty good article, even without it. Definitely. Well, and so to, to dive into that a little bit within this paper, you do allude to the uh, the potential utility in, in training on I don't know response. And you'd already mentioned that one of the clients sort of went that route by herself. Why is I don't know uh, a potentially useful response or potentially incompatible response with echolalia? Why why would that be desirable? Well, if if we're understanding the function of the behavior correctly, um, I don't know is is the sort of socially appropriate replacement behavior. So if you know. And I, I, I know plenty of adults who should learn to say, I don't know, but uh, instead, of, instead of just offering a thought, but, um, but, but that, that is what we'd, we'd want our learners to be able to communicate in the simplest way possible. Um, so whenever we're thinking about replacement behaviors, we want, we want to play that efficiency game, right? So if echolalia is a, an efficient response, we need a, an equally efficient response to teach as a replacement behavior, otherwise um, it's not likely to maintain. So I don't know, seem to be this sort of omnibus response that is a reasonable replacement for just repeating back what, what the learner had heard. That makes sense. And I, I see the social utility in an I don't know, right? I'm like thinking in a, in a let's say a classroom study with, with other children. If a child goes up to the, your client and says, hey, where are the Legos? And the client goes, Legos. Or where's Legos repeats back to full utterance. As opposed to, I don't know, right? If, if they just say, where's the Legos back to the, the child who is requesting information, 
you know, that's going to likely lead to uh, potential social disconnect with that with that student who's reaching out to your client. I don't know, so much more socially appropriate. For sure. And I think, you know, there's so much social, there's so much nuance in social skills that um, that certainly you could imagine a version of echolalia that would be socially appropriate, right? So if you were, if the child, in, you know, were to engage in echolalia as we defined it, um, but sort of looked around and kind of pondered it, you know, that could be socially appropriate because it's, it's suggestive of an appropriate response. But how do you teach that in a child? Um, versus just kind of a rote response that communicates the same type of meaning, which is, I don't, I don't have the answer for you at this moment. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I often find myself engaging in echolalia as I'm processing and thinking, but hopefully I'm telegraphing that I'm, that I'm actually, you know, I'm responding in some way in a meaningful a socially meaningful way, as opposed to just sort of repeating back to, to someone who asked me the question. That, that makes a lot of sense. Now, circling back to the idea that echolalia is something that they can and, and should be assessed for either antecedent variables that are controlling or potentially consequence variables that are controlling it. You looked at sort of very specific variables related to novel master task and, and the length of utterance. Are there other variables that people should be thinking about considering as they look at their clients who engage in echolalia and are interested in using a similar methodology to assess the variables that may be affecting it? Yeah, I think the, you know, the, the first thing I would always advises just because we can intervene doesn't mean we should. So the, the question that, that should be on everyone's mind, I think, is, is this a behavior worthy of intervening on? Um, and that would require some conversation with stakeholders. Um, so for these participants, we, we chose them because their echolalia was impacting them in a way that, that was um, socially significant. So, and I think the same goes with, with uh, vocal stereotypy to some extent, right? We wanna let these individuals be who they are. And, um, and only when we, we think, when we have a consensus that intervening could meaningfully improve their lives, should we undertake this time to assess and treat this behavior. So I think that's a really important piece you know, I, I know a lot of, I have a lot of clients and, and had in the past who engage in echolalia during leisure time. And, and I think that, you know, again, there's nuance there, but, but, you know, not every idiosyncratic behavior should be corrected. I love that distinction. I think it's important that, you know, echolalia in and of itself may not be a problem. I, you know, there are a lot of clients who engage in certain stimming behaviors, whether it's hand flapping or whatever it may be, that may be a perfectly appropriate, acceptable, useful behavior for that client. The catch is if, if it is in some way disrupting, you know, the, the qual or disrupting their lives and affecting the quality of their lives at that point. Yeah. We probably need to help them learn to not do it or engage in other behaviors in specific contexts. It doesn't necessarily mean we're trying to eliminate it. Um, from their lives entirely, just going, hey, like, 
when we're engaging in these tasks, the hand flapping is disrupting and that's going to cause long-term problems for them in life because they're not going to have the opportunity to learn certain skills, et cetera. But it's perfectly acceptable and, and uh, to do in, in certain other settings. Yeah, exactly right. Going back to the question with looking at variables that may be controlling echolalia, you've identified that for these particular clients, novel ta- or novel demands, you know, certainly contribute to the likelihood of echolalia. Are there other variables that are of interest to you that, that may be worth exploring from a, from a clinical standpoint, if we've got clinicians listening to this podcast or potential researchers who want to contribute to this line of research and, 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 and sort of take what you've done and build on it. Are there other pieces that we should be looking at? Yeah. So we were primarily interested in interverbal demands. Um, and the reason why was, was, was due to this turn-taking kind of conceptualization. Um, but there are other types of verbal demands that could be, um, that could be targeted here. So, um, you know, um, Things like, you know, uh, manding or other types of, uh, of, of verbal behavior that might be of interest to, to academic, um, in academic contexts or whatever else. Um, but, but primarily we were interested in this as sort of like a, um, almost as a social skill and understanding the, the way that, um, that the environment might mediate these behaviors. Um, I would also be interested to understand about, um, you know, under what conditions these behaviors might be automatic. And, uh, and if I had to speculate, I would think that, um, that delayed echolalia might serve more of an automatic function than immediate echolalia. Um, but that's just completely anecdotal and, um, and would be really interested, interesting to, to take a look at. I don't want to derail this conversation, but as I'm thinking about delayed echolalia, I'm wondering if you think like singing a song that I heard earlier would potentially fall into that category. Yeah, I think just like anything else, it would be how you define it. But in the way that I would think about it, I would think that would be delayed echolalia, right? So, you know, any any repetition of, uh, of a previous, uh, previously heard stimulus could be echolalic. Um, but where do you draw the line? Um, and, you know, again, it goes back to social significance. So, you know, if I'm in my office by myself singing a song, you know, maybe that's okay. I guess it depends on who you ask, but um, but you know, where, at what point do you intervene? I, I think, I think, yes, that probably is echolalia. Um, and so this just goes to show you that we all engage in these behaviors to, to some level or, or the other. Um, and in a lot of ways that makes us who we are. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've, I've, you know, when I've had songs stuck in my head, it's always a curious thing as to, to why that's happening and why I find it so reinforcing to like, even if not out loud, just almost go through a song in my head. And yeah, it's, uh, then 
becomes even more interesting to conceptualize that as potentially a, a delayed form of, of echolalia. For sure. And, you know, I think that, you know, you can get the nuance here is really fascinating, right? So then why are you engaging in that form of delayed echolalia? Is it automatic positive? Is it automatic negative, right? Um, and, uh, and some of this is, is, would be complicated to, to test experimentally, but I certainly know people who say, you know, if you have something stuck in your head, you got to sing it and then it goes away. Um, so for them, it's aversive. Um, but for other people, it's, it's, it's not aversive, it's pleasurable. Um, and so, you know, the, the rabbit hole is pretty deep. Yeah, well, I was just reflecting on for myself, I think oftentimes when I have a song stuck in my head, it tends to be a song that's relatively newer to me. And it tends to be a song where I'm missing like a piece of it, like there's, there's a section of lyrics that are sort of fuzzy and I, and I haven't quite gotten them worked out. Right. So I'm like singing, I say the first part of a verse and then I, what is, what are the next lines there? And I keep going over the first part almost to like lead into what the next part is, but I don't know the words. It's a new song to me. Um, And so in that case, it almost is, I suppose, uh, I guess maybe negative automatically reinforcing where I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to, I don't know. I, I'm perhaps not. I don't know. It's tricky. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. It certainly sounds like it, that the way you're describing it is more of like an active process where you're trying to work out a private event. Yeah. As opposed to more of a passive process of just kind of humming along while you do something else. Yeah. At the same time, though, I'll catch myself doing it really on like I'll, I'll, I'll have been going through the song repeatedly in my head and then realize, oh, my gosh, I keep going over these first, you know, four sentences of a verse uh, and then like catch myself doing it and going, that's OK, I'm going to distract myself and do something else. <laughs> sure. uh, yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, interesting topic. I mean, as you kind of alluded to, in, in many ways, this is just beginning to scratch the surface. This is the first time someone's really looking at experimental control over variables that may be affecting the likelihood of echolalia. And so I suspect there's a lot that can be done uh, within this topic moving forward. Yeah, I think so as well. I'll be interested to see what the extensions of, of this paper are, if, if any. For people interested in this, this topic, as you said, there's just not a lot already out there, but do you have any recommendations or resources or considerations for folks who want to learn more about this topic? Obviously, they should go and check out your paper to read it in detail. Is there anything else out there that, that could be helpful for them? Yeah, I, I, you know, the behavior analytic literature is a little bit sparse on this, um, but for individuals who are interested in this phenomenon more broadly, I think there's a there's a, a richer body of of work on on this um, on this on some of these ideas, um, specifically, you know, reading about theory of mind. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's some research on pronoun reversal that was sort of the kind of some of the foundation of some of the way that I was thinking about this. Um, and, and there's all kinds of speculation on why pronoun reversal occurs. Um, but um, that uh, pronoun reversal, again, very common 
phenomenon in, in individuals with autism um, and, and, and some different theories on why that happens. Um, but this really, really dives into, you know, the pragmatic language literature, um, which is a fascinating one, not one that I'm not an expert in, um, but, uh, but there's, there's a lot of reading to be done on just understanding some of the mechanisms of language um, from a non-behavior analytic perspective. I think it, 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 adds, um, it adds to some of those references are in the paper, but obviously not a lot uh, because of the audience that this paper was geared towards. But, but I, think, I think that would round out some of the, the reading on this topic. Um, and, and that's where I would recommend starting. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's helpful. I think that this seems to be a theme of this season of BAPCAST is to look at what other fields are doing. We don't have to continuously reinvent the wheel. Uh, oftentimes, other fields have done good work with, with populations and with behaviors that we're interested in. And it doesn't mean that we should take what they say or what they've done necessarily without any sort of skepticism or making it our own, but we can at least look to see what they've done and use that as some sort of source material to then maybe craft and adapt to fit our needs. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, that some, some researchers just look at this primarily from a conceptual lens. Um, and while there might not be, you know, dramatic clinical implications in, in those readings, it, it informs the way we might want to approach a behavior of interest. And for that reason, it's worth doing. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you for coming on the show today to talk about this paper. It was fascinating. I think it's going to be very useful for people that are practicing with individuals with autism, given the, the prevalence of echolalia in that population. So thanks for sharing this resource with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen. And to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of Behavior Analysis and Practice, The Journal. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin, and to my production assistant for this episode, Tatiana Pilar. As always, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.